All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. And like always, want to invite everyone to join in with us in the show today. If you have any questions or comments about what we're discussing, you can leave your live comments or questions on the YouTube page on uh, the live chat. We'll be watching that as the program goes on. Or you can visit our website at BibleQuest.tv and let us know your comments and questions there. Uh, so today we've got Justin Dobbs with us. How are you, Justin? Doing well, thank God. How are you? Doing well. It's good to see you. And Scott Smelser uh, should be on with us in just a couple of minutes. Um, he was on and then had to hop off for a minute. So we'll look forward to having him on with the discussion, uh, hopefully later on. Uh, so we are back in Mark this afternoon uh, and we're going to finish up mark chapter 12 and move into chapter 13. the last time that we were able to discuss mark we got to mark 12 verse 35. Um, and so this is still in the same kind of scene same setting as what we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks jesus is in um, the last week of his life he's in jerusalem and kind of dealing with some of the opposition but then he's also going to start really focusing in on preparing his disciples for what's about to happen um, and especially that will happen in chapter 13. So, um, do when do you guys want to read Mark 12, starting in verse 35? Yeah, I can do that. I'll just read down through uh, verse 37. Uh, and Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. It's like a, yeah. Jesus was um, uh, getting used to being uh, interviewed and critiqued and challenged and tested. And so here he, I won't say he zings one back, but this is a serious honest question. It's not kind of stuff that was trying to get them to think, think more carefully about their presumptions about the Messiah. And about who he is, uh, if they can get past the presumptions that Jesus fits all of these uh, Old Testament prophecies, uh, they've, they've seen sign after sign, and so here he is where he belongs in the temple. Uh, he asks this question that I think they haven't really thought through. Yeah, it's interesting that he comes back because, like, this whole chapter, pretty much all of, of Mark 12, or at least the, the vast majority of it, is Jesus being challenged and him being asked all the questions. And he shoots back with every single challenge, every single question, the immediate right answer, immediately what to say, astounds the crowds. They're not able to ask him any more questions. In fact, they're afraid to ask him questions after a certain point because they keep losing, they keep losing. And then Jesus asked them, this is actually the second question, I, I think, within this, uh, this same time period. The other one will have, was in Mark chapter 11. And I think this is all continual, maybe even the same day of what's going on here, um, at least within the same week. But he asked them about John's baptism, and they didn't want to answer. I don't think they didn't know the answer. They just didn't want to answer um, because the implications were things that they didn't want. But here he asked them this deep question about the Messiah um that uh nobody it seems is able to answer um kind of confusing and that just shows i think another aspect of jesus's wisdom and knowledge some of the places that jesus chooses to go in scripture in this chapter are not places that like i would pick to go to like whenever he's talking with the sadducees he goes to exodus 3 and 4 um to to answer their problems and and prove that 
there is a resurrection, that there is uh, an afterlife uh, and those kinds of things. Um, and then whenever he wants to challenge them about the Messiah and their knowledge about the Messiah, uh, he goes to Psalm 110, um, which is not a place that I would pick to go to. But that just shows kind of the value and the wisdom and knowledge of God's word that Jesus really has here, really reinforcing and emphasizing this idea that he is the good teacher. He is the true rabbi. Uh, he's he's the, the word of God and he is the son of God. So. Let's go back and take a look at Psalm 110. Um, it's an interesting psalm, and it's worth noting how many times the New Testament either quotes it or refers to it. So let's go back there. Psalm 110. Yeah, I have a note in my Bible, um, just from my own personal studies, that it, it is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament no fewer than 18 times. So it's the most quoted passage uh, in the, yeah. the the most quoted verse might be Leviticus 19 uh 17 or 18 love your neighbors yourself which is I think seven times in the New Testament uh and maybe there's a verse in here that sometimes but it's th this is not it's not just one verse this part of the verse is quoted here that part is there that part is there so let's start taking a look at that. So it begins with the section that Jesus points out. And you'll notice something here in your Old Testament that you might not have noticed in Mark 12. Uh, in your guys' text, in Mark 12, did the font for Lord look the same in both cases? No, uh, the first Lord is in all caps. That's the... Uh... Testament of Mark. Oh no, 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 no. And Mark is just Lord, Lord, yeah. Yeah. meaning master, right? Curious. So uh New Testament writers often use the Septuagint. Not always, but often. Let's just back up and remind ourselves what the Septuagint is. What is the Septuagint? That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. And it was written. I don't know, maybe a couple hundred years before Jesus. So the Old Testament in Hebrew, when people were speaking Hebrew works fine. And when they're speaking Aramaic, that's not always a terribly different language. Uh, but by the time of the New Testament, uh, a lot of Jews live in Greek speaking lands. Um, so you think of all the Jews, more Jews lived outside of Palestine than in Palestine, apparently. Uh, and you can notice whenever Paul go, gets to town, there's almost always a synagogue that he can go to. So, yeah, years before Jesus was born, uh, Greek-speaking Greek Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, um, there near the coast, translated the Bible into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. But there was a Jewish superstition about not pronouncing the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, is we have it Y-H-W-H. Uh, and so they would avoid that. You can see this if you're ever reading uh, conservative Jewish writings today. Have you guys ever noticed that when they put the word God, they'll put a G in a blank space and a D. They're not wanting to write the word God. Well, Jews were not wanting to use the name of God. So in the Septuagint, whenever Yahweh was used, 
they would use the Greek kurios, which is Lord. So most of our Bibles follow this tradition, but they make a distinction. When it's the Tetragrammaton, those four letters, which relates to I am, uh, they put it, the O-R-D is in small caps. But when it's just the word for master, uh, Lord, they, it's O-R-D or in lower caps. So when we come to Psalm 110.1, a Psalm of David, Jesus said, why did David say this? The Lord, that's Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Adon. Mm -hmm. uh, usually in the Old Testament, Lord is, when it's not Yahweh, it's Adonai, plural, as Elohim is. But this time it's singular. It's not Adonai, it's Adon. Mm -hmm. so Yahweh says to my Adon, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus poses a really good question here. Why, Jonathan, if you were king, like, let's say you're king of Littlestown. <laughs> and, and after you, Ray is going to be king of Littlestown. Uh, you love Ray. You, you call Ray all kinds of things. You call him, I used to call him Stingray, you know, all sorts of things. But the one thing you don't call Ray is you don't call him your Lord. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because you're the dad. Right. David's the dad of the Messiah. It's going to be one of his descendants. So why would Yahweh, would, why would David say that Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand? So what's the answer? Because he's greater. <laughs> well, the Jews on that day that Jesus asked didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it could be uh, some have suggested Psalm 110 is not of David in the sense that David wrote it, but it's of David in the sense that it's about David. Uh, but that that begins to have problems of its own. When you start looking at Psalm 110, he says, you're a priest forever. I think most Jews would have understood this can't be about David because he's not a priest. He's yeah. king. So uh, by process of elimination, this isn't about David. It's from David. It's about somebody, and we don't know who it is. Yeah. And Jesus said that David was writing it by the Holy Spirit about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. All right. So a Psalm of David, the Lord, Yahweh says, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, and then the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So the Lord David's Lord is going to sit at the right hand and rule until he makes all his enemies his footstool. First Corinthians 15. You know, it says he must reign until he made all until all of his enemies are defeated, and the last enemy defeated is death. And then, of course, um, your verse four, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek which gets developed extensively in what book? Yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things about, and, and this is brought out in Hebrews, one of the things that interesting about Melchizedek was he was both king and priest. Yeah, king and priest. David was king, but he wanted the priest. 
Aaron was priest. He wanted the king, king and priest. So really cool times. Yeah. So <laughs> Jesus references that text. Uh, Mark doesn't note this, but the other gospels, Matthew will note that nobody knew how to answer him. Um, he, he asked that. And like what Justin said, no one, no one knew what the answer was. Um, but Jesus understands. And, and we can see now looking retroactively back at it. His point is because the Lord is the son of God. The Lord is Jesus. Uh, and so he's obviously greater than David. So he kind of, it looks like back in Mark chapter 12, Jesus kind of piggybacks off of that, um, that he, he has this teaching from Psalm 110. No one else is seemingly able to understand it, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. And he goes on to start talking about their teaching and some warnings against them. But Justin, do you have something you want to say before that? Yeah, just real quick before we move on to the warnings. Um, this kind of uh, idea isn't just found in Psalm 110. It's found in other passages. For example, I'll just point out one of them. In Isaiah chapter 11, uh, a prophecy that certainly would have been seen as messianic by Jesus today. Isaiah 11, verse 1. It's prophesied that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It's kind of a sevenfold spirit happening here in verse 2. But this shoot from the stump of Jesse, uh, Jesse's David's father. And so it's sort of like a descendant of David. But a descendant who comes from before David. You know, it's not from David's branch, it's from David's root. Uh, and, and that's a fascinating picture that here's a son of David who prefigures David, comes from before David. A number of other Old Testament passages that have this kind of mind boggling idea. How can the Messiah be the son of David, but also be from before David? And, and really, the only thing that makes sense of that is that Jesus is more than a man. Uh, he, he is the human descendant of David, but he's the one who made David. Uh, he's, he's the creator God. And that fits with other things we've seen in Mark, you know, Mark chapter 2. Uh, who can forgive sins but God? Well, Jesus can. Um, who can calm the storms? Only God can. And that happens to be Jesus in the boat with us. There's just a number of other things that are pointing to who is Jesus and he's more than just a man. Yeah, good point. Yep. God's got also interesting the consolidation of figures from the Old Testament to the New. So in the Old Testament, they had kings, they had priests, they had animal sacrifices. Well, Jesus is the king, he is our great high priest, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It's like it all comes in. So the scribes uh, and the Pharisees not able to answer Jesus. And so Jesus goes on to say, after asking his question in Mark 12, verse 38, uh, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. Um, so Jesus in his like rebuking section, Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time, at least comparatively to like what Matthew records in Matthew 23 uh, about Jesus's rebukes of the scribes and the Pharisees. But he does hit it a little bit here in this short little paragraph. 
what are the problems and the things that Jesus is saying, beware of, of the scribes? Why does he say, watch out for them? What do you guys see? They're kind of teaching, um, puffs up the teacher. And if the students are going to become like the master, then they'll be puffed up. So they, really, they really go with this doctrine and style of teaching because it makes them look good. They're going to wear their long robes, the greetings the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best feasts. So they're really not in this for glorifying God, for helping people to see truth, not be more pleasing to, to the Lord. It's about self-promotion. And anytime our religion is about self-promotion, uh, it, it's a, okay, it's a so dead religion. It's, it's not going to work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I like that. Scott, you have any thoughts on uh, the rebukes of the scribes? What, what thing other, here too? other than that we need to let that rebuke sink in deep for us and not do the same things uh for a pretense making long prayers you know loving the place of honors they 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 liked it, it's uh oh one time there was a young fellow leading singing and he was just like it was just ridiculous um, he was coming down the aisles, looking at people, waving his arms around, it kind of making a performance out of it. And afterwards, I was talking with him about it, and I pointed out another time in a different uh, uh, non-spiritual thing where he was just trying to, and he goes, I, I just like to be the center of attention. Mm -hmm. If we're leading Amazing Grace, who should be the center of attention? Yeah, got it. If we're preaching about amazing, we should be the center of attention. Yeah. When, when, when people aren't thinking about us, they're thinking about the Lord. We're doing our job. Mm -hmm. I was playing with a young guy this morning. Uh, he's getting ready to preach his first sermon. Uh, you know, the, the church I'm part of, we make an opportunity every so often for some of the other guys to get a chance to preach besides the guys who normally do it. And uh, it's his first time. And he's excited, he's nervous. That's reminding him look, preaching is an act of worship. Um, if, if your sermon doesn't glorify God and it glorifies you, you've done it wrong. So I think you're right when you take one other thought here in verse 40 before we move to the next section uh, is devouring the widow's houses um someone helped me recently it's got a few your brother jeff uh, no it wasn't no well it was in a discussion with jeff but, but jeff went oh yeah that seems a good idea which made it seem pretty impressive to me <laughs> if jeff thinks it's a good idea maybe it is um but uh the idea that these guys are going around devouring widows' houses. It may be an introduction to the next story. Uh, that in verses 41 through 44, Jesus may not necessarily be defending the widow. Uh, and I often use the passage, you know, the widow, often all that she had as kind of a good example of what we should do when we give. And maybe there's a point to be made there, but it seems like more that Jesus is pointing out to his disciples to see what these guys have done. They have devoured widows' houses, and here's one of them. That because of their their false religion, 
they are hurting other people. And that's one thing that we have to keep in mind is, is when we're promoting ourselves, we're not just attracting from God's glory, we're keeping other people from seeing his glory and being helped by him. Our false religion hurts other people. And so there's a thought as we move into the next section. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's good. So we can read that that next section uh, after Jesus says what he says to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, in verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are, who are contributing to the offering box. For they have all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. Um, so yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. I like that point. Jesus just got done saying, the scribes are devouring widows' houses. And look, <laughs> you know, here's here's one of them that's uh, maybe maybe being directly affected by them um, and their, their poor example, poor leadership. Uh, in in the religious uh, setting, um, but also I think Jesus is making a point of kind of the heart of giving and contributing and wanting to give to God. Um, this what Jesus says here. It, it reminds me of David's attitude, and I don't know if uh, Jesus was maybe trying to pull onto that that he brought up David previously. But you remember whenever David sinned um, and he took the census. And uh, he was condemned for that and punished for that and had to pick his, his punishment. Um, and then the Lord ended up uh, kind of deciding because David pleaded for mercy. But afterwards, David wanted to um, offer a sacrifice uh, for his sins. And so he went and was going to purchase a piece of land and, and build an altar and purchase the sacrifice so that he could sacrifice it to the Lord. And the guy who owned the land and the sacrifice uh, he just wanted to give it to David because David's the king. So he said, here, you just take it for free, no charge. And David said, no, I'm not going to give the Lord something which costs me nothing. Um, and that I, I like how David says that, but it really reminds me of what Jesus is kind of showing here because there are a whole bunch of people in the temple that are giving the Lord a lot. Um, he says they're they're contributing large sums in verse 41. But what catches Jesus's attention is the widow that is giving a very small amount, one penny. But comparatively, I guess percentage-wise, it's so much more. And it's actually a sacrifice. It's actually costing her something. Whereas, like, if I'm a millionaire, uh, you know, $1,000 is not that much. <laughs> if I have, you know, $3,000 to my name, $1,000 is a lot. <laughs> Uh, so it makes it makes a big difference there. It's that idea of what sacrifice really is. And I think that maybe we can feel that way sometimes whenever we're coming to the Lord and worship that like, yeah, we, we know that we have to give him stuff, but I'm just going to give him a little bit as long as it doesn't affect the rest of my lifestyle. Um, and I, I don't know that that doesn't work with like money contributions here, but that doesn't work just in general application either. Then I'm going to give the Lord just a little bit of my life, like maybe just a few minutes, as long as it doesn't affect the rest of my day. Uh, you know, kind of thing. It just it doesn't work that way. So I, I agree with with your point, Justin. I think directly contextually, we're talking about you know what the scribes are doing to all these widows and devouring their houses. And then look, uh, even even here, maybe the reason why this widow only had two small copper coins um, is because of previous uh, requirements or things that were or 
placed on her by the scribes. I don't know, that's maybe an inference. Um, but she also sets a good example in her attitude of what she's willing to do. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. I think it's a great uh, point to be made here uh, that uh, the disciples would have been accustomed to all of the, the pageantry around them. I mean, this is a wonderful thing to come to Jerusalem a couple times a year uh, as Jewish men. And so here they are, as, uh, these fishermen from Galilee, and they make their, their trip to the big city. And these wonderful things, and rich people, and, uh, rich sacrifices, and Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about. Like, it's that, that little service from the heart, she gives all that she has. And, and that may tie in well with the next section. Talks, you know, they're so impressed by all the buildings. Um, yeah, I think you're right. There's something to be said. What, what is it that Jesus, that Jesus notices? notices the simple person giving uh, comes completely to God. Uh, we want to give something big to God. Well, Jesus says, just, I want you. I want all that you have. Uh, and when you think about it, he made us. He bought us. It's not that big of a deal to give to God. It should be that big of a sacrifice. Scott? One mindset that sometimes your people have is they're looking for the minimum. Uh, you know, which if you're buying a used car, you might say, hey, what's the bottom dollar you'll pay? And that's the way sometimes people will take, you know, uh, now what, what's the least I can do? Um, and it's just, it's, it's got to go a lot, lot, lot deeper than that. It's, it's, if we have that idea that we'll give the Lord this little section here, that's, that's an insult. The, the rich young ruler had given the Lord's way in everything except one, and that wasn't enough. Uh, so we, we have to turn over, we have to surrender to the Lord. Uh, country music will sometimes reflect this lifestyle lyrics like, you know, poker on Saturday night, church on Sunday morning. You know, it's like you, do, you give the Lord this this little bit uh, right here, and that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Um, you guys have anything else you want to say through chapter 12? Let's yeah. dive into chapter 13. It's a, it's a doozy. Yeah, so then we get into chapter 13, um, which is an interesting conversation. Um, so I, I can start off reading what, what kind of sets up the stage. We probably won't have time this week to talk about everything, so we can continue this next week. But uh, in verse 1, it says, As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building. Uh, and Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be... Uh, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us about when these things will be, and what will be the sign, and what will uh, when all these things are about to be accomplished. Uh, so I'll just stop right there. Uh, that kind of sets the the stage for what's going to happen in this next chapter. Um, but they they come out of the temple, and the temple was a pretty impressive building. I don't know. I think we've talked about that before here on this program. Um, but I don't know. Scott, I think you you know a little bit about that. Do you want to talk about Herod's temple just for a minute? Yeah. Um, I was privileged to see a recreation of the temple as a model. It was about the size of a ping pong table of the whole temple complex. Lean Rittmeyer, an uh, artist, archaeologist, expert uh, from Great Britain did it. And he brought it over a number of years ago 
to the Washington, D.C. area and presented it to a Jewish audience at one of the Jewish centers there. I think they had either financed part of the work of it or all of the work of it or it's coming over or something. Um, but Rittmeyer uh, believes Jesus is the Messiah. And while he's talking to this Jewish audience, he said, now, it's for the temple itself. The holy place, we can't do any archaeology on that because there is not one stone left upon another. Um, yeah, he, he got that in there. Yeah. Uh, it was the whole complex, which some of it is still there, of uh, the base, like, like where the Gentiles could have gone, the Wailing Wall. That's not the outside of the Holy of Holies or anything. That's foundation stuff on the outside of this huge platform that was about, I think, 16 football fields large. Mm -hmm. um, there were different gates, like the beautiful gate with Corinthian bronze. Uh, there was the royal stoa at the south end, where I think maybe the Sanhedrin met. Um, there was the steps below that, where Rabbi Gamaliel trained his students. Mm -hmm. All would have been there. On the east is Solomon's porch, which was these huge, huge columns and little bitty people down here. On the north, there was the Tower of Antonio, where the Roman soldiers came down from. Um, in the middle, surrounded by a low wall that says you can't go past this if you're from another nation or you will die, was the barrier. And then only Jews could go in here. So the money changers and all that would be out, out of this. And then you went into the court of women. That's as far as women could go, and that's where the treasury was. That's where the widow did this. Then you go inside, and you, you can still look up at the sky, but there's walls around you, and here's the altar, and the Jewish men could go in there with their sacrifices. Then there's the doors into which only the priest can go, and the veil behind only which the high priest can go. Most, if you go into, if you turn on religious radio, the chances are you're listening to a premillennialist. If you go to a religious bookstore and ask where the prophecy section is, it's probably not going to have a lot of information about the prophecies of Isaiah. <laughs> Pardon me. As much on books of contemporary prophecy. And they change all the time. You know, in the early 1900s, it would have been somebody would be talking about the nation of Turkey. Um, in the 1930s, there was a book that said it looks like Mussolini might be the Antichrist. You know, during the full first Gulf War, people try to say, oh, it's Saddam Hussein. It just goes and goes and goes. And those people always take this to be a prediction of the future. Mm -hmm. And they think very soon there's going to be a rapture. Jesus is going to take his people out. And Antichrist is going to come to power. The Jews will have rebuilt the temple but then the temple's going to get torn down. And Jesus comes back, battled Armageddon, and then Jesus will be sitting in Jerusalem ruling, and you can get on a plane and fly over there and see Jesus ruling the world for a thousand years. Very opening text. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones, what buildings. And Jesus said, Do you see these? Mm -hmm. He's not talking about future stones, future buildings. He said, these will be torn down. Were mm -hmm. there was a Jewish revolt and that resulted in a Jewish war that went from 66 to 70 AD. 
And in 70 AD, the Romans came in and tore it down and flattened it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's pretty shocking. Go ahead, Justin. Go ahead. What? Well, I was just going to say, it's helpful, too, thinking about the time frame. This is a difficult passage. Uh, and lots of as, as we're going to read the rest of chapter 13 later. Um, and it sounds like end of the world kind of language. And for the Jews, it would have felt very much like the end of the world. It was certainly the end of the era. Um, but when you read ahead, you see Mark 13, uh, verse 30. And Jesus says, I'm truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, Jesus is being pretty plain. As much as the figurative language sort of carries us away, uh, gets us imagined. What what is he talking about? He sets some markers down that are pretty plain. These buildings, sorry, in the chapter, and then verse 30, uh, this is what's going to happen within the next generation. We're not, we're not still waiting for the culmination of these things. The Jews would have understood. This is, this is coming soon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and all that's all that's going to be really shocking for the the Jewish people because it would be like to put it in maybe a sense that like our like modern American listeners would maybe understand if you're in like Washington D.C. and like you see the the Capitol building and you see the White House and you see the Lincoln Memorial and all those really amazing you know kind of giant statues, really great architecture, all that kind of stuff, and you're like, wow, this is really incredible. And then someone comes up to you and says, all this. Is going to be totally destroyed. Um, it, it, you're not even going to be able to recognize this place anymore. You'd be like, "What? <laughs> like, how? When? <laughs> like, what? That that's not possible. You know that kind of thing. That would be kind of the equivalent of what Jesus says here. Yeah, yeah. And it may have made them think that that's going to be the end of the world. Maybe their questions is presented in Matthew is is like this. When's that going to happen in, in the end of the world? Uh, it's a couple of different things. One, but one was going to happen in 70 AD. And let's just take note, this is referred to a lot in Scripture. And I want to mention something, a point, if you're ever studying with uh, uh, somebody that believes in the Old Testament, but not the New, and then also just see uh, for a minute how much this is referenced elsewhere in the, the Old Testament. Let's suppose I am an Orthodox Jew. And I believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the other books, but no Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, etc. I look at my Old Testament law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. What does a whole lot of that have to do with? Temple sacrifices. Yeah, the construction of the temple, the sacrifices, the feasts there and everything. A whole lot of that. For 2,000 years, the Jews have not had a place to do that. Mm-hmm. And it happened in the same generation in which Jesus was rejected and killed. And he predicted it. And he replaces that. John 1.14, he came in tabernacled among us. Emmanuel, God with us, which is what the original tabernacle was stating. And just to notice, John the Baptist came and saying, you know, repent, because even right now, the axe is at the root of the trees. And in Luke chapter 19, uh, the triumphal entry. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you even had known you 
had known on this day the things that make for peace. This is Luke 19.42. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another. And Luke 17, where it says, parallel language with uh, Mark 13, uh, and he's going to say, I'm having trouble spotting it. The part about Jerusalem being destroyed. Uh, it's from verse 22 and following. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, that's not the section I'm looking for. Oh, Luke 21. My bad, my bad. So Luke 17 is a different thing. Luke 21 that starts with the poor widow and then goes to verse 5. They're looking at all the stones and he said, you know, these are going to be torn down. And then it says in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that her desolation has come near. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains. And then he says in verse 24, they'll fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. It's so not mm -hmm. the world. This is it's the end of Jerusalem. Yeah. What one thought here? Um, this, I don't know, it's kind of a side thing, but we often want to know what's going to happen to us. You know, we're interested in our own future. We're interested in. Uh, Come along and show us. Well, take this path. Take this path. This is where you're going to go. And and Jesus is making some solid predictions here. You know, in Mark 13, 36, he's talking about this prophecy that's going to be fulfilled, uh, and it begins with him you know, uh, being raised from the dead and ascending to the throne. Uh, something that's currently in effect. It, it it also looks forward to a time when he's going to defeat all his enemies the resurrection and the defeat of death uh, there's this prediction where jesus talks about don't put your hope in these things that are uh, beautiful and impressive in a materialistic kind of way instead you need to trust me so we think about our future and want to know what what's coming for us uh, if we trust jesus then we can be really sure of our future i'm not going to know from day to day what's going to happen that's what god says but i can know ultimately what's going to happen as i want to be on the right side uh, his judgment. So I need to trust the one who knows what, what he's about, knows his plan, is going to accomplish his will, regardless of all the things that may stand against him. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, has set up his kingdom, uh, against all these uh, oppositions. It, it shouldn't have happened, but it, it did because Jesus isn't just predicting the future, he's accomplishing it. He's accomplishing his will, he's controlling the outcome. That's a good way to put it. Uh, all right um well i don't think that we have time to get into jesus's uh answering the question of the disciples we can save that for the next time uh that we're in mark um but i will point out one, uh, one thing kind of at, at the very beginning of jesus's answer to their question and also at the very end of the chapter there's this similar kind of theme and he really has this theme kind of throughout 
the instructions that he's giving. In verse 9, he says, but be on your guard. Um, and then he tells them the things that are going to happen to them. And then in verse 36 and 37, he says, he's going to come suddenly come and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Um, the, the theme of the teaching of what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see is, yeah, this is going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's going to be judged. That's going to happen. But there are going to be a lot of other things that are happening as well that are hard and challenging and difficult for followers of Jesus. You need to watch yourself. You need to make sure that you are living righteously. And like what Justin said in the end, the one who endures will be saved. And he says that in the middle in verse 15. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Um, same message that he gives to uh, you know, Christians still today that Jesus says, uh, the one that's faithful until death will receive the crown of life, uh, quoted from, from Revelation 2. But we don't have time to get into all the details of that, so we can do that next time. Do you guys have anything else you want to say before we wrap up? All right. Uh, well, thank you to our audience for joining us today. If you have any questions or uh, comments about what we've discussed, you can visit our website at BibleQuest.tv, and we'll be happy to talk about that more in our future programs. But we'll wrap it up today a few minutes early and plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.